Open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. And today I'm preaching the fourth part of a message we began a few weeks ago, entitled God's Way or No Way. If you're going to go to heaven, it's going to be God's way, or it will be no way. We've been looking at verses 17 through 20 in Matthew chapter 5, and our discussion has been about Jesus' teachings concerning the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' viewpoint of the scriptures, the holy word of God. As I've stated in previous messages, that this great sermon that's called the Sermon on the Mount came at a crucial time in Jesus' ministry. It was necessary for him to preach this particular sermon because there was such a great difference between his teachings and what the people had heard from their religious leaders. And not only was what Jesus was saying different, but Jesus used scathing words to denounce the hypocrisy of those religious leaders, and he openly criticized them for what they said. And so not only were Jesus' teachings positive, in that he encouraged people to do, of course, what is right, but they were also negative, and telling them what they must not do, and also how they should avoid the excesses and the misinterpretations of Scripture that the Pharisees and scribes had put upon the law. Now, I might mention by way of introduction this morning that the religious world today is involved in such pluralism that many people say that doctrine doesn't matter. That if there is a doctrine that's not actually taught in the Scriptures, that it's not really so important that we point that out because the doctrine doesn't matter. And the thing that matters is that we're not too negative, that we don't really say anything bad about what somebody else believes, and so we're not negative in our teaching. But I find in the Scripture that that is often the method of Jesus and the apostles. They identified false doctrine. They weren't ashamed to speak negatively about it when it was warranted. Sometimes to expound the truth, you have to expose the lie. And the truth never shines so brightly as when it's put up next to those lies. And so some people criticize me because I may speak of the beliefs that someone else has and I expose the lie. Well, if you criticize me, then you'd have to criticize Jesus and the apostles because that was their method. And I believe that we don't see it any more clearly than in these verses that we've been studying, and especially the one that we're going to read today. Now, as we read the Scriptures this morning, I want to show you what I mean as we develop this sermon. And so we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17, as Jesus continues this great Sermon on the Mount. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we've read today, we 
ask you, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to the truth of your word. May we see true righteousness and where this comes from. Help us to understand that if we are going to go to heaven, we must go your way, and there is no other way. Bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's back up for just a moment and let's survey what's already been taught in the beginning of Jesus' sermon. The first part of this sermon, verses 3 through 12, are what is commonly called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means a blessing. And in these Beatitudes, there are eight different characteristics of the person who is a part of God's kingdom. These are kingdom prerequisites. And Jesus says that those who are going to be in his kingdom must have these characteristics. And these are the ones who are truly blessed because they are a part of God's kingdom. The key beatitude in that whole list is in verse number 8 where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that beatitude sets the tone for what comes afterward because Jesus is teaching here that the pure in heart are the ones who will see him and these are the ones who have experienced an operation of God upon their hearts. The Holy Spirit has entered into them and operated on their hearts in such a way with a supernatural operation by giving them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the next verses, verses 13 through 16, Jesus teaches that those who have that operation upon their heart will be different from those that are around them. And so he uses salt. He says, you're the salt of the earth. And just like salt is a different flavoring, then the people who have this operation are going to be an influence upon the world, a good influence upon other people. They're also a preservative from much of the evil that takes place in the world. Their righteous actions will have an effect of retarding evil. But then it goes beyond that because Jesus told them, he said, you are also light. And so that is an outgoing aspect of this. They will be a shining light as the gospel of Christ. They will point men to the only one who can save them from their sins. Now we come to verses 17 through 20, which are another type of introduction to the rest of this sermon. And here Jesus will begin to describe what real works of righteousness are. What kinds of works does God accept? Are they works that come from our flesh, or are they works that come out of regeneration? One that has total dependence upon God and none on self. And so as Jesus speaks in these verses, he lays down two postulates. The first one is that what he teaches is in perfect harmony with the Scriptures. He says that nothing that he says will contradict anything that Moses and the prophets said. The second postulate is the negative part of Christ's teaching. And this is the part where he names names and he exposes false teachings because he says that everything that he teaches is in harmony with Scripture, but everything that he teaches is in disharmony with what has been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we covered that first postulate in the first two parts of the message. And we saw that in Jesus' teachings, he lifted up Scripture. And so we called that the exaltation of Scripture. Now, the question that was on everybody's minds at this time was that Jesus' teachings are so different, what then does he really think about Scripture? There was a rap between what he said and what the Pharisees said. And so the question is, does he really have regard for Moses and the prophets? 
And the reason they would ask that question is because the Pharisees had so confused them. There was a great deal of difficulty cutting through all of the mishmash of added commands that no one really knew what Scripture was anyway. I'm going to get to this later in the uh, next message, but you have to remember that these people did not have copies of Scripture. They couldn't take the Scriptures home and read them, and even if they did have copies of the Scripture, most of them couldn't understand it anyway. And that's because by this time, the people, especially in the area of Galilee, couldn't read Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Only the very educated could read and understand Hebrew. And who were the very educated? Well, those were the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the people became dependent upon what scribes and Pharisees said because they couldn't read the Scripture for themselves. And so Jesus had to set this straight. The scribes and Pharisees are not putting right interpretation on Scripture. And further, they had added their traditions, they had added their opinions in place of Scripture, so the people really didn't know the difference. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to change anything that's in the Scripture. He exalted the Scripture, and he preached that he had come to be their fulfillment. And then in verse number 18... Jesus declared the preservation of Scripture. He said, heaven and earth will pass away before the smallest part, the most insignificant of God's word will pass away. And that was just re-emphasizing that Jesus would not go against Scripture because God's word is settled, it is preserved, it is permanent, it is forever binding. And the people didn't even recognize it at this time, but Jesus was the very author of those Scriptures. And I would remind you today that nothing has changed. Word of God is still binding upon us today. Our faith is dependent upon an unchanging, infallible, inviolable Word of God. So verses 17 and 18 cover that first postulate. Everything that Jesus teaches is in harmony with Scripture. Well, the second postulate is in verses 19 and 20. Everything that Jesus teaches is in disharmony with the teachings of scribes and Pharisees. Now, we started by explaining in verse number 19 the application of Scripture. What do the Scriptures teach others to do? What should we teach others to do? Well, we teach them to obey Scripture. We show them that Christ has fulfilled them. And we show them that Christ is the antitype of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Each of those thousands of sacrifices made for so many years during the Old Testament period, they were a graphic representation of what Christ would come to do. He would go to the cross, and there he would shed his precious blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And he would answer God's justice by paying sin's everlasting penalty. And so the Old Testament law was given to bring us to the foot of the cross where God's justice is satisfied. So we have exaltation of Scripture, the preservation of Scripture, the application of Scripture. And now we come to verse number 20. And here Jesus drops a bombshell because here he's going to give a very clear, unmistakable rebuke of their religious leaders. And the second postulate is nailed down by Jesus' next statement. The scribes and the Pharisees are in disharmony with me and Scripture. That's what Jesus says. Now, notice the way that he puts this. He says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter 
into the kingdom of heaven. Now that brings us to our subject this morning, which is the demonstration of Scripture. How do the Scriptures show that the scribes and Pharisees' teachings are wrong? What is it that the law of God was intended to do? And we simply cannot imagine how that verse number 20 rattled these people. This was a bombastic statement that Jesus makes. It explodes on them, and it's like taking all of their hopes and grinding them right down into the ground. Who can be more righteous than a scribe and a Pharisee? Do you mean that somehow I have to climb higher and I have to be more holy than they? And the people were thinking, I'm having extreme hardship just getting to the level where the scribes and Pharisees are. So now are you telling me that that's not going to work either? And indeed, there was a saying among the people that if only two people were going to get into heaven, one is a scribe and the other is a Pharisee. And now Jesus comes along and he says that even their good works are not enough. And so if there's no hope for them, how is there any possibility for me? Now, do you see how radical that was? Now, we're going to explore that for the next few minutes. And we begin by looking at the problem of righteousness. What's wrong with what the scribes and the Pharisees taught? Well, the problem is righteousness is internal, not external. Now, if we go back to the sixth beatitude again, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. So what Jesus has done, he's already set us up for the correct teaching about righteousness. It is internal. It's a matter of the heart. It's not external. These Pharisees only had an external righteousness. There was nothing at all on the inside. And so you could look at a Pharisee's life, and you could follow him around, and you would find there is no evidence of adultery there. He won't commit adultery. You could follow him, and you would see that he would never worship an idol, because that's against God. He won't worship idols. You could go with him into the temple, and there you could watch him throw his coins into the treasury box. He would, re- treasury box. He would respect the law of the tithe of God. And they trumpeted those kinds of things openly and loudly. You Remember that story of when Jesus was watching people put their offerings into the treasury? And along comes a woman, a widow woman, who only has two mites, two little pennies, and she put them into... And then he watched as the Pharisees came along and they threw their gold coins into the box and people listened to them rattle around. And Jesus said that that woman was one who really loved God because he could look into her heart and he could see that she gave all that she had because of her love for God. But then he looked at the Pharisees and he saw there was nothing there at all. There was no love for God. It was an outward show that they were putting on. And so it was all external. There was nothing internal there. Now, these are people who are the exact opposite of what he taught in the Beatitudes. They weren't poor in spirit because they thought that they were rich in all of their righteous works. They didn't mourn over sin, as Jesus said those in his kingdom would do, because they thought they had no sin. They weren't merciful because they're the very same ones who took the woman who was taken in adultery and would have stoned her. They weren't peacemakers. Because all that their teachings did was to bring strife to the people. It made people judgmental of one another. And so on and on it goes. There's nothing internal about it at all. Now, while they wouldn't commit the act of adultery, at the same time, they had this unbridled lust in their hearts. 
And this is why Jesus says in verses 27 and 28 of this chapter, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So here is Jesus bringing them back to the real intent of the law. This is a matter of the heart. And the law was never given to show us how good that we are. The law was given to show us how sinful, how bad that we are. And so you could put yourself up against the Ten Commandments and you can check each of the Ten Commandments off. And can you look at this commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, and yet have anger in your heart? Jesus said that's breaking the commandment. That's what he says in verses 21 and 22. Can you look at adultery and say, Well, I've never committed adultery, but then you have lust in your heart? And yet, as I've shown you, Jesus said that's breaking a commandment against adultery. And so can you pull out all of those Ten Commandments and you can realize there that God says that you have to have a relationship to your fellow man such that you love your enemies? Jesus taught that as well. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. It is a motive of the heart. It's not just what you do on the outside. But that's the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. There was wickedness in their heart. And so Jesus is teaching here that there has to be a change of focus. They're focusing on the external, but God focuses on the internal. Indeed, God said to the prophet, he said, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so I would ask you today, what is your motive? Only you know what's deep in your heart. Are you putting up a front? Is your Christianity a front? Are you going through all the religious motions that are there, but there's really no change that's taking place in your heart? See, there are many people who come to church. They read their Bibles every day. They pray in public. They go to church. They sit in the pews. They never miss a Sunday. But there's something that's missing. And that is they have the outward facade, but they don't have the inward faith. So that's one of the problems of the Pharisees. They're mixed up about righteousness. And the goal of their lives was holiness. Live in holiness. And there's nothing wrong with that. God wants us to be a holy people. But the question is, where does that holiness come from? How can you get it? Can you get holiness out of what you do? Or is it something that comes from outside of you that's bigger than you? Now that's a problem with the scribes and Pharisees. But they have another problem. Their next problem is that man's standard is low and God's standard is high. So they have the wrong view of standards. Now, you might not think that because you look at what the Pharisees had done and the standard, their standard to be very high. These are people that are hair splitters. They looked at God's law and they started to pick it apart and they defined the law of God right down to the minutest details to the smallest degree what God's word, what God's law means. So they could tell you how far that you could walk on a Sabbath day and not be doing work. They could tell you whether you could bandage a wound if you were injured or whether you can only put a Band-Aid on it. They could divide up all of the seeds that came in the harvest, write down and count them to the smallest part to make sure that they were keeping God's law, God's tithe perfectly in the exact amount. And we look at that and we think, well, that's a high standard. It's almost an impossible standard to keep. But really, that's just the opposite. 
their definitions always stayed within the parameters of their capabilities. And if you look at religion the world over, this is what man always does. He devises a way that he can get to heaven, and then that way is always within the realm of his human capability. That's true in so-called Christianity. How can I get to heaven? Ask the average person that. How do you get to heaven? What do they say? Well, you've got to be good. And if you begin to press that question, you get some other answers. Well, what kinds of things do you have to do to be good? And some of them will say, well, you have to help the poor. You have to give to the soup kitchen. And those that are really industrious will say, no, it's not enough to give. You can't just donate. You actually have to go there. You have to present yourself there. You have to work in the soup kitchen. But the really religiously astute, they'll usually turn to something that they've heard in church. There's a sacrament I must keep. Baptism, maybe taking the Eucharist, maybe being regular at confession. See, there's just a list of things that you can do, and then you'll be just fine. Well, what does it do? It lowers the standard. God's standard is much higher than that, because God says you have to keep every thought pure. You have to love your next-door neighbor that keeps you up all night playing rap music. You've got to appreciate that nut who just cut you off in traffic and then gave you an unholy gesture. You've got to think of every single person better than you and never put yourself first. Now, how, how are you going to keep that standard? You see, every one of you baptized, sanctified people here and today, you're going to break that standard before you ever get out of the parking lot. My goodness, folks, I've seen this happen. People will stomp out of church after a Sunday morning sermon because something happened in the nursery that they didn't like. And so they got angry about that. Let me tell you something. If you can't keep it together in here, how are you going to keep it together out there? This is what Jesus is saying. God's standard is higher. God's standard says you have to bear it. You have to take another's indiscretions. You have to smile your way through it. You have to get smacked on one cheek, turn the other, and get smacked there too. So how are you going to do it? Now you see you're getting at the real intent of the law. It was never given to show you how righteous that you are. It's given to show how unholy you are, how undeserving you are, how much a sinner you are, and me too. So how are we going to be holy and righteous? If we can't do it by keeping the commandments, if we can't do it by keeping sacraments and all of that stuff, how are we going to be right with God? How are we going to make it into heaven? Well, there are numerous places that we could go in Scripture to explain it, but it just so happens that the Apostle Paul was arguing about this very point in the book of Romans. If the law cannot justify us, then what can? I want you to turn your Bibles back over there to Romans chapter 3 that we were reading just a few minutes ago. And we're going to skip down past all of this part that you know about how there's none righteous, no, not one. That's found in verses 10 through 18. And we're going to take a look at this beginning in verse number 19. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse number 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge 
of sin. And that's what we've been talking about. The law brings the knowledge of sin. It doesn't show you how good you are. It shows you that you are a sinner. And so you're never going to get anything out of the law except how far short you've fallen from keeping it. Verse number 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, isn't that just repeating what Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen? The law and the prophets, that's what Jesus upheld. Now, notice in verse number 22 that Paul is really explaining what Jesus says in our text verses in Matthew chapter 5. The righteousness that we need must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what kind of righteousness is that? Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there is how you get the righteousness that you need. It's not by your efforts. It's not by lowering the standard to what you can do. You get this righteousness in only one way, and it comes by faith in Christ. What did Christ do that satisfies God's demand for righteousness? Well, that comes in the next verses, verse number 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Now, that word simply means satisfaction. It's satisfaction to God. Whom God has set forth to be a satisfaction, a propitiation, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins, that's forgiveness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, do you see this? What is the righteousness that you need? It's Christ's righteousness and not ours. You can't get to heaven on your own righteousness because it doesn't count with God. It has to be Christ's righteousness alone that makes us right with God. Now, here's the conclusion, and it hits right at the heart of the Pharisees' doctrine. Look at verse 27. Where is boasting then? Hey, Pharisee, you're boasting about what you do. What do you have to boast about? Now, let me pause right there for just a moment. I want you to stay right there in the book of Romans and listen to this for just a moment. The scriptures are on the screen. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Jesus is speaking a parable, and he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, there you have the typical Pharisee. He prays, and as he does, he enumerates before God all the good things that he did, all the righteous things, and he's boasting about it. Now, that's one man who went up to pray, but there's another man. Verse 13, and the publican, that's the despicable tax collector that the Jews hated, and the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself 
shall be exalted. Now, do you see the difference in that? It's no different than with all those people who have relied upon the sacraments and all these good deeds and all the philanthropy that they have. They aren't justified by any of it. It's because it's not the right kind of righteousness. It doesn't count. There's a fundamental difference in righteousness. Now, this kind is not the one that justifies. This is righteousness that comes from us, but there's a righteousness that comes from God. Now, let's go back to Romans again, verse number 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So how will you be saved? Is it by what you do? No, Ephesians says that you can't work for it. It is a gift of God. And you get it by faith in Christ. And even that faith doesn't come from you. That comes from God. Now, I said a moment ago that there is a change of focus. There has to be a change of focus. Now, the focus is the change from the external works that we do to the internal work that God does. Now, in that change of focus... There's also another demonstrable change, and that is who gets glory for what has just taken place. Now, here then we see that our righteousness glorifies self, but God's righteousness glorifies the Savior. And so when the Pharisee went into the temple to pray, who did he glorify? When he said, well, I thank you that I'm not as other men, did he say anything about what God had done for him? Did he thank God that he'd been called from a life of sin into a life of holiness? No, his focus was on his good works. His focus was on what he could do. So he says, I'm not unjust. I don't extort money. I don't commit adultery. And he looked at that old publican and he said, I'm not like him. And so what's that? It's me, me, me. Look at me, God. See what I've done. See how good that I am. And so if he were testifying in church today, you know what he'd say? I've been baptized. I, I've been praying. I brought my offering today. I sang in the choir today. I did, I did, I did, I did. So God give me the glory because I'm holy and righteous. Look at all the good things that I've done. But the publican, the extorting tax collector, didn't think that he was even worthy to look up into heaven. He just beat himself on the chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So which one of them glorified God? Which one sees Christ as his only sufficiency? Which one knows from where his help comes? I want you to think about this today. If the Pope came in here today with his regal robes and his pointy miter on his head, if he came in and people start bowing down to him and kissing his ring and kissing his toe, who gets the glory? On the other hand, if we have a homeless man here, he has his old tattered clothes on, he hasn't taken a bath in three weeks, and yet with tears in his eyes, he bows before Almighty God and says, God saved this unworthy soul. Who gets the glory? You see the difference? Jesus says, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And even in that humbling, That comes because the Holy Spirit has spoken to the heart and caused the man to bow his head and bend his knee. That way, God gets all the glory. 
Salvation from beginning to end is all of God because he begins the work of faith in us and then he finishes it by drawing the sinner to himself. Jesus said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now let's think about the word exceed there for just a minute. Does that mean, is Jesus saying to them, well, you have to do many, many more works than the scribes and the Pharisees did? Is Jesus saying, well, there's a threshold here, and when you reach this certain level, when you get to that threshold, that means you're all right. You're going to get into heaven. Well, here's the final point, and then we'll be through. Man adds quantity. God accounts quality. So the gist of Jesus' teaching comes down to this. There is a fundamental difference between your righteousness and Christ's righteousness. So we think that the way we're going to get to heaven is just keep adding and adding and adding. Pile up all of these good deeds. Now, if the secret to getting to heaven is the good things that we do, then the higher that that pile gets, the more assurance that we have. If my pile is higher than your pile, then I'm sure to get to heaven, and you may not. I keep piling them up so my chances are better. And that's the viewpoint of the world. Again, you ask anybody out there, how do you get to heaven? Well, it's that pile of good deeds that they've done, and it's nothing more than the religion of the Pharisees. It's exactly the same thing. Now, several weeks ago, we were studying on a Wednesday night, and we came across a verse of Scripture in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, before Paul was saved, he was one of those self-righteous Pharisees. As a matter of fact, he was the best of all of them. He said, if there's anyone who can claim righteousness by the law, it's me. He said, I've got everybody beat. I have kept the law right down to its very finest point. But then Jesus saved him. And that's when Paul realized that his righteousness amounting to nothing, amounted to nothing because it was the wrong kind. Now, in that sermon, I likened or compared our righteousness to monopoly money. Now, let me repeat for you the point that I made. No matter how much righteousness that we accumulate, none of what we have matters with God. We can save up as much as we can get, But we're never going to get to heaven by our righteousness because that is not a valid method of exchange in God's economy. It's just like if you're playing Monopoly and you're the one at the end who ends up with all the houses and all the hotels. You've got all the money and you broke the bank. And so you look at that, all that you possess there, and you throw up your hands and you say, I'm rich! I'm rich, and so you go out and you take your Monopoly money and you go to buy a house. Now you can afford it. You've got all this money. So you go out and you hand your money over to the seller and you say, well, here's your money. Let me move in. And what is he going to do? He's going to look at you and he's going to take your Monopoly money. He's going to tear it up and throw it back at you. And then he's going to think that you are some kind of a nut. You are a total fool. Now, The reason that he does that is because the monopoly money doesn't count. It's no good as a method of exchange. It works in the game just fine, but it doesn't work as a method of exchange in the United States economy. Monopoly money does not count for anything, and it's the same thing with God. 
And this is what Paul means. It's the same with our righteousness. When it comes to purchasing your home in heaven, all of your good works are monopoly money. Now this is what Paul means then when he says in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. What does that mean? That there's nobody in the world that's ever done a good deed. Of course not. People do lots of good deeds. What he means is that in God's economy, your righteousness is monopoly money. They don't count for anything. God's righteousness and our righteousness are two totally different things. So it doesn't matter how much of your righteousness or my righteousness that we accumulate. God's just never going to accept it. You see, there's a different quality about Christ, Christ's righteousness. Now, we look at the quantity, how much we can get, how much we keep piling up. But the quality of our righteousness is never good enough for God. And no matter how much we get, it'll always be no good in God's economy. And so to get into heaven, what you need is that you need to be as good as God. That's it. That's the whole secret. To get into heaven, you have to be as good as God. Now, you can only be as good as God by getting the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you by faith. And so Jesus' message to these people is the very same as the Old Testament Scriptures taught, and that is all of those sacrifices and all those laws that you keep are never going to make you perfect, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and who died for you, can make you perfect. Now the question is, have you trusted in him? Have you stopped relying on yourself to get you to heaven? You see, no one is ever going to be justified by their good works. doesn't matter how high the pile gets. God does not trade that way. You see, your heavenly home has already been purchased, and it was bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus that was slain or poured out on the cross of Calvary. And so if you trust him, then he'll give you the holiness and the righteousness by which you can see God. There is no other way but that. And so, if God gives you that, and you receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, then you can say right now, I have the goodness of God. I have the righteousness that God requires. And this is how I'm going to see him. Not by what I have done, but by what Jesus Christ has done for me. The question is, do you believe it? Do you trust him? Because that's God's way, and it's the only way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we come with understanding, hopefully, among all of us that are here, that we have no goodness in ourselves. We have nothing that we can do that would ever help us to see you. There is no hope of eternal life unless we come through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we've learned here, that that righteousness comes to us not by any sacraments that we keep, not by our baptism, not by taking the Lord's Supper, not by attending church, not by praying, but the righteousness that we need comes only by faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. I pray, Lord, that there is someone here today that you've opened their eyes to this truth, that they might realize that the only way that they can be saved is through Jesus. Lord, we pray for Christians here today that, again, this might be the thought on their minds every day of their lives that only by the grace of God will I ever see heaven. Lord, bless 
in the time that we're, we have now to sing these few words of song. And I pray, Lord, there's anyone here after this is through that they want to speak about baptism. They want to speak about salvation. They want to speak about any problems that are going on in their life that they just need help with, that you would direct them to our men who can help them today. Bless in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.